Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You are listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. You are listening to On the Environment, a podcast series by the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. My name is Marissa Canodal, a research assistant at the Center, and I'm in the studio today with writer-activist attorney Julian Agin for the second half of a two-part podcast. Julian's work centers around human and indigenous rights under international law, with an emphasis in the rights of non-self-governing and indigenous peoples. Julian, thank you again for joining us thank today. You, thank you. So I want to hear a little bit more about what inspired you to go to law school. Was it a particular experience, or did you always know that you wanted to use law in a way to fight social and environmental injustice? And uh, how has law helped advance the causes you believe in, and what are some of its limitations that you found? Um, okay. Um, actually... I actually wasn't sure I was going to go to college at all, not mm-hmm. even undergrad. <laughs> I used to be a singer. I started out as a as a gospel singer, and then I learned to sing the blues, and I love Nina Simone. And, I mean, it just, you know, I thought I was a black woman for a while. I, I'm just <laughs> kidding. But but I used to, I just had so many other things that filled me up. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't necessarily n- know that I was going to go to law school or even desired it. I I wanted to do that. So, you know, my life is, it's been interesting. I've been, you know, things at various points capture my imagination. But ultimately, when I came back home from college, because I did go, um, I studied sociology and I also studied women's studies under Professor Jane Reinhardt, who's just magnanimous. Um, But when I got back, I saw a lot of what was happening on Guam. Um, And for some reason... You know, you can be on Guam and you can live in a place and you you don't really see things. But you leave for a while, you come back, and all of a sudden you're blessed with vision, right? Like you can actually, you have two eyes and they work and you see. And you see in ways that you didn't see before. So I saw a lot of troubling things about um, colonialism and, and just like almost like little things that were wrong with Guam. I and mean, there was also a huge... And there's also big things. For example, there was an attempt uh, before I went to law school to privatize water. And all I had heard from from the outset was that it's going to be good, it's going to be good. But the, once we started researching and investigating some of this, we found out it was Bechtel who was wanted to privatize, privatize the water. And I had activist friends who had worked in Cochabamba about trying to throw Bechtel out of the country right. because they were trying to um, even privatize, God, even rainwater or something, mm-hmm. or at least made that part of it illegal. So there was a lot of like, hmm. And just that wasn't really the disturbing part that Bechtel was interested in water. That That's not it. It's, it's the chilling um, sense around the room at which these meetings and these announcements were made. And there, were, there was nothing happening. Nothing, no like real critical independent investigation of the truth like there was none of that like things were just happening so it just felt like like just like I don't know like a tank rolling down the street and I would without any sort of fight and I was just like that that was the tiniest example that's just one thing there was at the time in 2004 2005 2006 that felt very it grew bigger and bigger in me and um so I stumbled upon activism I guess you could say and um, I met more and more people and and then I heard from people in the movement and 
And then slowly, slowly it creeped in this understanding that we in Guam have had a lot of advocacy, like we, we've had a lot of it, but we haven't had a lot of analysis. And I think, I, I don't know, I just was keenly aware that that needed to change, that we needed more incisive analysis. We needed really solid analysis and like we needed analytical frameworks. We needed to be articulate. We needed to like articulate sort of like the analytical framework that we're using or were being used against us to try to, yeah. And, and basically activism alone, you know, when you hold signs on a street corner and you, you, you do a lot of meetings and you try to do, I mean, I think maybe perhaps a lot of activists go through this. Uh, they 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 really they realize one day or one afternoon, I'm in a conversation with a friend or at a board meeting, where city hall is supposed to city council is planning to do something, or they hear the U.S. Congress announce something. There's just there's the, this moment when you feel like you really need to get that tool, the tool being law. Of course, I we talked a lot about this in the first segment, but um for me, I just became very aware that man, this really is a tool that is so powerful. So I, I do need, I need to get, get it and I need to put it in my toolkit. So that, that's essentially why I, um, ultimately that's the process of how I even became a 1L at UH, uh, at William S. Richardson School of Law. And I was lucky that, you know, I had found some, I made some great friends and had some good professors who were very progressive and they were, you know, the critical race types. Um, they were just, they were really good professors. Um, I mean, the native Hawaiian, um, Law Center, um, Kahuliao Center for Excellence in Native Hawaiian Law, became like a second home for me at um, UH uh, Law School. And it's, it was just a great experience. And since then, um, I think the last part of your question was about, um, remind me. Uh, what some of the limitations are. Oh, found. I think I talked a little bit about that on the first segment about law's limitations more generally. But yeah, I would just say that I would just go back to what we were talking about in the first segment. I think I've always been really clear about that, but it's so my challenge now is to always be able to translate that, to interpret some of that in in ways that my own community and the communities I work with can understand. So in some ways, it's not just about knowing something. It's about interpreting and translating that something to other people who might not know. Um, so So that's a constant companion of mine, while I lawyer, while I do law. And um, I'm probably, I do, I've opened a private practice. I'm just a solo, but I'll probably be doing more work in the region incrementally um, as we go along. So hopefully I will also build, you know, allies and partners and other progressive lawyers and, you know, we'll continue to do work in the law while we recognize at the same time its limitations. What are the issues your practice is focusing on right now and what's currently occupying your legal imagination, as you put it? Oh, okay. There's, there's a lot of issues going on right now legally. Um, I <laughs> or guess maybe pick the your most... top two or three. <laughs> okay. okay, yeah, for time purposes. I think the most important thing to note is a recent case going on now in Guam, um, Dave, Davis versus Guam. Um, Dave Davis is a Caucasian resident of Guam who's lived there for a long time. I think he's a uh, retired U.S. Air Force, and he has brought a claim in the Federal District Court of Guam alleging that Guam's... Um, self-determination plebiscite which it will hold in the near or distant future is illegal or unconstitutional race-based discrimination in the wake of Rice v. Cayetano um, and other cases. He, uh, the allegation is that it's race-based 
um, discrimination prohibited by the Constitution as well as the Voting Rights Act. So I, although I was not a, obviously a party, but I wasn't a lawyer for a party, I wasn't serving as counsel, I ended up filing an amicus curia brief. I had to file a brief because I thought that one of the most dispositive threshold issues that hadn't been briefed by either the AG of Guam, the Attorney General's office who was defending the vote, the right of Guam to have this referendum in the way it wanted to have it. And the plaintiff, no one had actually, you know, discussed this issue. And it was just a prudential doctrine. So I ended up writing amicus with, you know, with the help of a few other lawyer friends. And we, I wrote this amicus on um, ripeness. So it was weird. It was a really counterintuitive moment where I realized again the sort of nature of law because the law loves restraint. I mean, judicial restraint, judges love that. I mean, this is something that they're comfortable with, prudential doctrines. You know, you know you're aware of the prudential doctrines, but ripeness is just one of them, and it was the most appropriate one to actually brief and to actually argue. So I, I sort of submitted a brief solely on that issue of ripeness, and bizarrely enough, in the federal court, because I had first raised it for the first time, and I actually, you know, there's, um, I think, a well-settled rule. It's almost an adage by now in the federal court system that amici should, amici should be seen and not heard. Because so, so amicus briefs are fine to be submitted, but you don't or participate in oral argument. I actually did participate in oral argument. The judge went against that sort of... Um, went against that impulse um, and allowed me as amicus to argue. So I found myself arguing for almost an hour and a half in federal court about ripeness, which was, on the one hand, great because it's it's good lawyering. But on the other hand, it was just so disappointing because, of course, I was chomping at the bit to actually argue the merits. I, too, would love to argue how Rice v. Cayetano does not govern the self-determination plebiscite should one be organized now or in the distant future. So it's not the appropriate case to cite. Um, And even if it's it's cited, it's it's very distinguishable from the situation in Guam. The first most relevant fact being that Guam is not a state. It's a territory. That's a huge difference that was so under-examined in the case thus far. Being a territory, you don't, I mean, Rice, you can't just, without even thinking, cite Rice, which governs state elections for, for our plebiscite. And the plebiscite itself is qualitative, qualitatively different. So anyway, I won't go into so many details of the case, but that case was interesting because I was just participating as an amicus, but then I ultimately uh, participated in the oral argument, and luckily we won. The judge agreed that it, the case was not ripe. So I was very happy that, that you know, I had, you know, was fortunate enough to raise an issue that became the dispositive issue. But now it's on appeal in the Ninth Circuit, so we'll see where that goes. And the AG is going to represent us, and we've been in communication. And, you know, so he's ready to go, the assistant AG who's on the case. Um, so that's one thing. Uh, the other case is was a case that was brought in regard to some of what's happening in Guam now with regard to a planned military buildup of the island. Um, I won't go into detail because we don't have enough time to talk about the militarization of Guam presently underway, or at least the contemplated militarization of Guam. Um, it's, it's stalled a little due to budgetary reasons in the United States at the congressional level, which is you know very useful for Guam right now with regard to the buildup. But with regard to the lawsuit that I was involved in, I see, and you see, this sort of goes back to this weird 
um, inability to pick a role. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I was a plaintiff, a named plaintiff in that lawsuit as opposed to the lawyer. Um, so I was one of, uh, I was the named plaintiff for We Are Guahan, and there was three other um, entities. We were all plaintiffs. And we sued the U.S. Um, Defense Department for violating, for alleged violations of NEPA. That's the National Environmental Policy Act. We were basically saying that the Department of Defense's plans to construct a massive live firing range upon an ancient indigenous burial site, a ground which is essentially a cemetery, um, for our indigenous Chamorro people, we were saying that we didn't, again, talk about all of that stuff, about the deeper issues there, but we just stuck it very narrowly under NEPA and made the claim that the U.S. Department of Defense failed to consider, quote, all reasonable alternatives prior to its selection of the pocket area to build upon which to build the firing range. So in effect, although this wasn't in a decision and order, in effect, we won that case as well because the U.S. Navy went back and said, okay, we actually agreed that we're, we're going to agree sort of before you even issue your ruling that we are going to do a supplemental EIS. That's a supplemental environmental impact statement. So essentially, they gave the plaintiffs the relief that we from the outset requested. So that was very useful too. So, I mean, the last thing I want to say about this, so you see, on Guam, it's, it, what I've learned anyway as a tactical issue is that it's very difficult to like look at a war head on and try to, to take some bites out of it. Instead, I learned the value of like taking a war and chipping it down and compartmentalizing into little bite-sized battles that you have a shot of winning. So, because it sort of, it increases political energy among people who are willing to take a stand on these issues because it's not you're not fighting everything. The energy it takes to fight everything you don't actually have to muster up. So it's just one little thing of a big thing. And so we we've sort of learned to do just that, just like really targeted, precise shots, and that and we take them. And so that that's been our approach, and you know it's it's worked. And I I'm really happy to have. I'm happy that this is sort of unfolded, even personally, because it does feel a little too daunting to try to take on a massive military buildup just as a whole. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, I had the opportunity to participate in the class you mentioned earlier with uh, Doug Kaiser, mm -hmm. Ambassador Stuart Beck, and Aaron Corman from Palau. And the class was analyzing that advice, the request for an advisory opinion from the International Court of Justice. And I think a lot of the students that participated in the class felt that it wasn't just a legal analysis. They think mm. they felt the moral weight of what Palau was trying to do. And my question is, I guess somewhat of a personal one, mm. but I think it could be helpful for other young lawyers as well, is how do, what role do young lawyers have to play and what advice would you give young lawyers who are going into communities that where they're not from that community, mm -hmm. yet they're interested in social justice issues, they're interested in the empowerment mm -hmm. of communities, and how do they balance that, I guess, colonial history mm -hmm. that you talk about, as well with this sense and this need for justice? God, that's a great question. You're very good at this. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, I actually have given this question a good deal of thought because I've, I've seen it in not just necessarily young lawyers but young people sure. you know freshly sobered by their you know educational experience come to far-flung places like these islands and immediately feel comfortable sharing their opinions <laughs> you know especially with like loud volume so that's just it gets to get a little aggravating but I would say the first thing though for you know well-intentioned progressive young lawyers is to 
sort of don't talk at first. <laughs> I think that's a really simple way to put it, but just listen and then talk. I mean, it's, it sounds so crudely simplistic, but believe it or not, it's something that actually, it's, it's, it's a grave misstep and a miscalculation on their part. And the moment they tar- start talking, you're dealing with tiny little ancient matrilineal civilizations that, 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 that will not forget that you talked first and you didn't listen. Um, so I, that, I think it goes a little bit back to what I said something in the first segment of this program that um, when I traveled personally, and I am from the region, from Guam, so I know that I'm an outsider in a way to all of the other islands, yet we do share a sort of similar colonial past, and we do have like you know ancient ties, traditional ties across the islands. So I felt, of course, more a- in a more advantageous position to be able to be slide more comfortably into those settings with people from those communities. But I also felt the need to um, sort of talk later and listen first. So I think it goes back to what I was saying about um, seeing, you, we need a new way of seeing that's more a listening than a seeing. I think that that really rings true in Micronesia in particular, especially because um, these people actually have stories, some of which are very, very heavy. They're, you don't casually impart such heavy stories. And I think you have to build a trust. You have to you build real relationships with people. I mean, these are, you know, it's a kind of exchange that's a little delicate. And I think when people are sharing things like the Marshallese sharing their experience about, you know, giving birth to babies that are so wildly deformed, um, I think that's not a kind of story that you would ever get if you come, you know, with with the wrong spirit. Um, so that's the first thing. But um, I would want to say also, don't be defeated by, from the outset to young lawyers. Like, we need you. I mean, the world needs you, the region, not just the region, but the world needs all of us, like all of us, even young lawyers who are going to make tons of missteps. So it's it's not it's also to be respectful, but not so harsh on yourself that you're not willing to take risks. Part of this is risky business. It's risky to go out there. And I mean, I've been meeting um, folks here just the most the brightest students i mean i met one named stephanie softier i I don't i think i just butchered Mm -hmm. her last name but she's just superlative i mean it's so obvious that she's she's meant to be doing what she's doing and she talks a lot about palestinian issues and everything and she's jewish and she's from here so i mean i think right now rachel corey who was run down in Palestine by a bulldozer. And she's from an American family here. And Alice Walker even wrote a poem about her, I think. But I mean, these, I mean, we need that. I mean, I think the one thing that's irrefutably true is that the world needs courageous, extraordinary actions by ordinary, non-extraordinary people. We all need to become better than we are. We need to contain more than we do. We need to insist harder than we do. I mean, young lawyers are desperately needed. I mean, I also need, would love more help, and the region could use more help about articulating new ways, finding legally innovative ways to bring causes of action that possibly presently don't exist. Climate change is just a screaming example of of how we actually need a new cause of action. We need a way to hold third-party states liable for their tortious eye or con criminal conduct so there's so much work to be done and it needs everyone and i think i would encourage young lawyers even from institutions like yale law school not to be so tentative that they don't jump into the river i mean you know we 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 need we also need that we we need risk taking and i think the world needs risk taking now 
Well, thank you so much for a fascinating conversation and for joining us today, Julian. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Mine too.